Welcome to Virtual Student Experiences, where we inspire students to aspire. For more information, please check out our website at www.virtualstudentexperiences.com. So, hello everyone, and welcome to Virtual Student Experiences Finance Spotlight. If you're new to our program, Virtual Student, Virtual Student Experiences is a pro bono initiative spearheaded for students by students. The goal of the VSC is to give students around the world an opportunity to learn um, from professionals in their career industry of interest in a friendly and casual setting. For students that know what they want to do, the role of the VSC is to encourage, allow, and connect those students with professionals. And through VSC, students are given the chance to decide if their career choice fits their personality, skills, and overall interests. For students who are ambivalent about their future, the, the role of the VSC is to help them not only to explore, but discover different career paths and options. To find out more information and sign up to be notified about our other webinars, you can visit our website at www.virtualstudentexperiences.com. Um, before we get started, I just wanna go over some housekeeping things, so hang tight. So firstly, I'm going to be asking our guest professional that I'll introduce in a second, a series of base questions so that you guys can get a good idea of who she is and what she does. Um, if at any time you have a question that you think of, feel free to post it in the Q&A module and we'll get to it in the later part of the webinar. Um, and now I'd like to introduce our guest professional, Ms. Lauren Pear. Uh, Ms. Pear is a graduate from University of Pennsylvania and spent the early years of her career as a high finance professional where she worked at the Bulge Bracket Investment Bank, Goldman Sachs. She also worked in, the new, in a New York hedge fund and the Federal Reserve where she continued to hone the skills which she learned during the time at the University of Pennsylvania, where she studied economics and finance. She's now on the board of trustees at the, and a director of the Honolulu Waldorf School and holds a position on their finance division. She also uses various platforms such as her show Screen Time Reset on Think Tech Hawaii to spread awareness about the negative effects of ex extended screen time exposure. Ms. Perry is an extremely, incredibly talented and intelligent individual who works tirelessly to help raise awareness for what really matters to her the most. So Ms. Perry, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for that introduction, buddy. Yep. Um, so for our first question, when did you really decide that you wanted to become a finance professional and how did that decision affect how you approached choosing your college? Yeah, so if I'm gonna to be totally honest about that, I'm not sure I ever did decide I was going to be a, a finance professional um, exactly. I, I suppose maybe when I went to the hedge fund, which was later in my career, um, when I came into college, I was totally undecided on my major and totally undecided on my career. So that actually did not have um, any impact on, on the college I chose. I chose a college that was uh, well-respected across the board uh, for that reason. Awesome. Um, and so what goals did you have when attending UPenn? Um, for example, like was Goldman Sachs or the New York Fed the ultimate goal? No, no, um, they weren't actually. I think I was a little bit of a, an outlier in that way, certainly for the investment banking world. But when I went to college, honestly, um, I, one of the, a big goal was to figure out what I wanted to do, which um, I found to be a lot more challenging question. Than, uh, than it seems like it should be. Um, and uh, I didn't find a great deal of guidance. So that was a big goal. To enjoy myself was actually a big goal. To give an honest effort to my classes, um, but to not stress about grades because uh, in 
high school, I, I think I let that mm, preoccupy me a bit too much. And um, to study abroad and just to, to have a fun college experience, honestly, was a awesome. big goal of mine. And I think that sums yeah. it up, honestly. Um, you mentioned guidance and how you had a challenge with guidance, but yeah. where, did you f where did you end up finding that guidance if you ever did? Not in college. Um, and honestly, not from the adults in my life because I was getting good grades at a top school. So I was a little concerned about what I do. And they're like, oh, don't even worry about it, Lauren. You'll do fine. You're getting great grades at a great school. Um, but if you don't actually know what you want to do with that, um, it's, it's still better than not having that. But um, so I, as far as where I eventually found guidance was from books, really. And um, the best book recommendation, uh, shoots, what is it now? There's some Stanford professors design your life, I think, is the title of it. Um, they actually created a class at Stanford. Uh, they said that they've just gotten amazing feedback from students. Uh, I think it's designing your life, designer designing your life. And um, yeah, so I would, I would recommend that for any students who are sort of grappling with that question. Awesome. Um, so while at Goldman Sachs, can you tell us a little bit about like what the work environment was there and what your role was? Yeah, so I applied to be an investment banking uh, summer analyst because that was sort of the what smart econ majors did. Like it was just kind of in the air at Penn. So I ended up applying for it and I got it. And um, yeah, I was actually invited to their credit capital markets, even though I applied for investment banking that was described to me as a hybrid between investment banking and sales and trading, uh, but closer to investment banking. Um, what I spent a lot of my time there doing was creating little uh, sort of summary pages on companies that were in our, uh, the area we covered, which was high yield healthcare and consumer, uh, consume, uh, consumer discretionary, I believe. And uh, so I did that. I did help write some pitch books. I'm not sure if you're, um, if the listeners are familiar, but in investment banking, a lot of work goes into these, you know, pitch books that you show the uh, companies that might want to bring their bonds or stocks to market. And you have all these lead tables showing that Goldman Sachs does the most high yield bonds in your sector. So you want to come with us and a bunch of other things like that. So um, I did some of that as well. Something that you definitely do more of in investment banking, pure investment banking is modeling. And that actually is a very useful skill in other uh, areas of finance after. That's, um, so that's something I didn't get as much of there. Um, as far as what the work environment was like, um, I thought it was fairly collegial. I mean, there's like a little locker room stuff. I'm not easily offended and it wasn't that bad for the most part. Um, but at Goldman, they had a, a policy of not over hiring. A lot of other banks will hire, for example, way more analysts than they actually need. So because it becomes kind of cutthroat. Goldman, maybe because they assume they have the benefit of um, most people who they give offers to will accept. They don't have to offer more seats than they need. And so it does lead to a little bit more of a collegial environment because you don't feel as competitive 
with the other analysts, or at least that was my experience. And something I did really like about it, um, the hours were a bit long for me personally, but everyone there was pretty much an A player, like on their game. It's really nice to like, from the people who were uh, producing the, you know, these uh, league table flip books, from to the people who you'd email from research to people on your team like everyone was really on it and that's actually a for me that was a really nice perk of working there oh that's that's really awesome and so yeah. um so what were what are the most important skills that you utilized in order to be successful at a bulge bracket bulge bracket investment bank that large such as goldman sachs yeah um, well, for myself, and again, I'll, I'll say for myself, and then I'll add a little bit for others, as I, I think I'm sort of a weird case, but I think my curiosity was uh, a piece of it. I was legitimately, um, and, and this, I mean, this does go for everyone. I was legitimately very interested in markets and the economy that comes off and I ask good questions and I've always had a facility with economic concepts and things. So I was a quick learner. Um, I also think just being like pleasant to work with, which doesn't mean being a pushover. You don't wanna be a pushover in finance, but there's a lot to be said for just uh, being generally uh, pleasant to be around, being generally nice to other people, that is something that um, I think can help a lot. And coupled with that, this is not if you're mean, um, but they, this maybe goes to an interview question, but something they talked about was passing the airplane test, which is would I want to sit next to this person? for five hours. And so I think a mistake that some of the people that like know they wanna be investment banking from like the second they get to college, they might be so stressed or trying to prove they're like so hardworking that they give off this nervous energy. And so that's something that if you, if this is a job that you really want, that you just wanna make sure to check that, you do wanna be on point, but not so that you're exuding this intense nervous energy that like people would be like, mm, failed the airplane test. Like, I don't want to be around that for five hours or all day, every day. You know, when you work long hours, you're with your coworker for a lot of time. Yeah. Um, so uh, as far as uh, a few other things that I might think that others, um, the skills that, that could be utilized, uh, certainly uh, we did a lot of work in Excel. Um, I do not know if that's like currently as, used or if they've migrated to other platforms, but that's something definitely if you're a younger, a junior analyst, being um, very skilled in whatever tech is used is a, is a great advantage. And whether or not they utilize it, they do look at your grades, right? So being a good student. Awesome. Um, so eventually after Goldman Sachs, you transferred into the Federal Reserve? Mm-hmm. Um, so was this transition challenging for you? And I mean, is it uncommon or common for financial professionals to transition from an investment bank into a central bank like the Federal Reserve? I think it's pretty uncommon. Um, at higher levels, it might happen. Like William Dudley, who was the president when I was at the Federal Reserve, actually came from Goldman Sachs. So at higher levels, you can see that happening. For the most part, I think it's more likely that some of the people who work at the Federal Reserve are trying to move into investment banks because the salaries are higher. Um, for myself, it, um, 
I would not say it was a difficult transition. At the time, I was planning to get my PhD in economics. So the program that I went to at the Fed was sort of set up, I worked underneath economists, and it was set up particularly for that. Um, the hours were so much nicer. So that was certainly for me an easy transition. It would have been harder going in the reverse. And indeed, after the Federal Reserve, I went to the he a hedge fund. And um, that was a, a little bit of that harder transition back to, to more um, working hours. Hmm. Um, the, the, that I also found collegial. I, I thought that the working environment, as far as my colleagues, both places were, was pretty nice, honestly. Well, that, that's, that's very good. Um, and yeah. so, I mean, how did your responsibilities at the New York Fed um, differ from your responsibilities at Goldman? Oh, they were quite different. At the Federal Reserve, um, again, I was in a program specifically for pre-PhD um, graduates, which was the idea of the program anyway. A lot of people would go on to law school or, or other endeavors, but had an interest maybe in getting their PhD. So a lot of what I did there was sort of support work for the economists. And a lot of that had to do with um, data cleaning. I had to use a few different programs, Stata, MATLAB, and SAS. So something that was difficult for me, like as an economics major, you aren't required to take any computer science at all and actually data cleaning, um, even though they, they're not like hardcore computer science languages, it is sort of using that same structure. So I ended up taking a computer science course while I was at the Fed at Columbia using their tuition assistance program. And that would have been uh, I wish I had taken that in undergrad. I, I would recommend to everyone, whether you're interested in finance or not, but particularly if you're interested in, in finance, to take a computer science 101 class. Um, if you have an aptitude and interest, minoring is even better, but even just one class gives you a really good grasp on sort of the basics and the structures of coding, which I think is it was already relevant when I was at the Federal Reserve. I think that is becoming more and more relevant in finance all the time. Hmm. Yeah, uh, I've heard that Python is really used for the data science and data mining, right? Yeah, yeah. very popular. Um, yeah. Exactly. Um, so, I mean, what do you feel was the most challenging aspect of working at the Fed and, I mean, as opposed to Goldman Sachs? For me, again, it was the coding, um, because that's something I felt ill-prepared for. Uh, as far as Goldman Sachs, I think for me, it was the hours. You know, I was supposed to be there every day at 7.30. I would normally leave between eight or nine. Um, that's a long day. And something honestly, and maybe this is an, an attitude issue, I would get a little bit of a chip on my shoulder because you would have like significant lulls during the day. And so when I'm really tired, because I like didn't get to sleep enough and you're having a lull, you're like, why am I here? I, I need more sleep, you know? So I got a little... Um, annoyed about that. Um, yeah, I would say for me, that was the biggest challenge at Goldman. Hmm. Um, did you ever feel like you were experiencing any burnout? Um, that's a good question. Could that be called burnout? I guess that could be called burnout because I was tired and I was at work too much, right? There was a, it's interesting though. I, I feel like I would have been more okay with it if I felt like I was always doing something. What annoyed me was feeling idle when there's a lot I would have liked to do with my time otherwise, including sleep. Mm -hmm. So 
yeah, it was at least some sort of species of burnout, I suppose. Hmm. Uh, awesome. And then, so, I mean, how did your background and attitude or unique skill set contribute to your success as an investment making analyst and finance professional? Um, I would say for myself personally, probably that I just have a, a natural aptitude and again, interest in, in economics. So I have noticed that I will ask questions that other people miss or don't ask or extend a question into a different area. It, it's interesting, that's not actually the most useful skill for a junior level, but any organization worth its weight is gonna identify that and, and appreciate those ideas and realize that there are, there are places you can go to. Um, again, though, I think that for people that, because everyone has different strengths and it's great if you have those strengths, but if you don't and you are a hard worker and diligent and good at Excel or whatever the technology is that they have most need for now, that will go a very long way. Um, I know we've been using, or for the viewers, that we've been using quite some technical terminology with um, specifically investment banks. Can you tell us a little bit about what the difference is between um, a retail commercial and investment bank? Yeah, so uh, investment banks, a uh, big purpose of theirs is to help large corporations issue stocks and bonds. When a corporation wants to raise more money, they can do in the form of equity, where they're basically giving investors a little piece of their company. And that translates into uh, technically when you own a stock, you have a claim on the future earnings of that company. And then bonds are just issuing debt. So for those, you have a fixed uh, number of years for the bonds and a fixed interest rate that you're paid. It's considered less risky, but there's also um, potentially less upside. So when a big company decides that it wants to go to market and have an a IPO or a secondary round or wants to issue bonds, they have to go through an investment bank. So investment banks um, sort of take the client, there's more of a, a client focus to these big businesses and, and to bring them to market is a lot of what investment banking is. Within investment banks, there are now more departments for wealth management and things like that. Commercial banks typically are more in the business of getting uh, deposits from consumers. Like I have a bank account, so where I put my money is more the, the job of uh, um, commercial banks. And then they'll also make direct loans rather than bringing bonds to the capital markets where investors from all around the world buy them. They'll actually give a loan directly to say a small or medium business um, and so in a nutshell, I would say that's what a, a commercial bank versus an investment bank does. Oh, awesome, thank you. Um, and then, so what would you say are the top, maybe top three skills that you would recommend someone who is uh, an, inspire, an aspiring investment banker to start to develop? Um, I would say a strong work ethic. And certainly at the beginning, uh, the ability to uh, tolerate somewhat monotonous tasks and to, I guess in trying to tolerate that, look for learning opportunities, look for the silver lining in that, since for a while that will probably be a decent part of your working life. 
Um, second, I would say a, a legitimate interest in, in finance and markets. Um, certainly burnout is more likely to afflict people that are just doing it because it makes the most money, they feel like they're supposed to. A lot of people find economics and finance very dry and dull. I know because I'm interested and I like to talk about it and you can see that for a sizable percentage of the populations, the eyes glaze over very quickly. So if that's you in the long run, um, I'm not sure you're gonna have a lot of success if you pursue a, a path that you have um, not a lot of interest in. And uh, the third, I, again, I would say is, is interpersonal skills. I mean, uh, both with clients, because a lot of investment banks um, are client facing, especially as you start rising the ranks a little bit and just within your, with your coworkers and your boss. I mean, something that I didn't learn, I would say until I was like 28, which is way too late, is that um, you're always a salesperson at the very least to your boss. Uh, I was a good student in high school, I was a good student in college, and I kind of felt like the um, prevailing wisdom was if you're really smart and good at what you do, you don't have to be a salesperson. That's like sales is for if you don't, you know, have that the meritocracy of, you know, grades and, and intelligence or whatever on your side. That is not correct. Um, at the very least, you're a salesperson to your boss for your promotion. You really want to know what your boss cares about. It's not just you thinking you're doing your best work. It's knowing what your boss cares about, what they're ranked on, and making sure that you are helping them in those things that they care about. So those interpersonal skills and empathy and sales, which, um, you know, you think of used car salesman, but actually to be a good salesperson, you have to have that empathy and it's a, it's a richer skill than I think it's often presented as. Those are the, so work ethic, interest and knowledge in finance and interpersonal skills are the three I would say. Um, and then what about networking? Have you found networking to be a crucial and vital skill, especially in the world of um, investment banking with relationships with clients and your peers and coworkers? Absolutely. I mean, for investment banking, I suppose I would say in that case, I didn't really do any networking, but both to get my job at the Federal Reserve, which was a very competitive position, and to get the job after that at the hedge fund, those were both more through uh, networking. At the Federal Reserve, I talked to a professor I had a lot of respect for. He noticed that the my thesis professor, who is the professor for all of the thesis students at, at Penn, all of the senior economic honors thesis students, he actually had a co-author at the Fed. So I reached out to him. I, I applied to the Fed online. Apparently my application like got eaten by a black hole, but I did, thanks to the tip of one professor, reached out to this other professor and he got in touch with his co-author who got me an interview. And then through the interview, I was able to get the job. With the hedge fund, it was so random. I was actually thinking about moving within the Fed at the time. They're, they made that pretty easy at the time. But I saw an old classmate from Penn, honestly, and her ex-boyfriend was leaving a hedge fund, this small hedge fund. She actually sounded like I could be a good fit. She had me and him meet. We met again. Then he arranged an interview with uh, his boss, and I got the job. Awesome. I mean, can you tell us about that experience with the hedge fund? Like what your responsibilities were and 
how was really working in that environment? Yeah, I found that by far the most interesting of the three jobs I was in. I had the longest leash and at the Fed, I was really constrained by um, economic models, which are um, have a few variables. There's a lot of data work, but they, they don't consider so many things. At the hedge fund, I was encouraged to consider everything that was going on that would actually affect investments, which could be from, you know, legal changes that could affect it to changes in consumer tastes or uh, companies opening up in, you know, for, I was looking at Apple, for example, right, in, this is back in 2010. So seeing their opportunity in the Chinese market was huge. Seeing at that time, it wasn't actually as obvious who was going to win the like self, the smartphone wars. That's, I was sort of in, I was looking at the smartphone ecosystem and trying to figure out who the winners would be. I don't think that my job was um, incredibly standard at the hedge fund. So basically there, uh, my boss had a bunch of positions. He had a very broad mandate. The hedge fund had started as a special situations fund, which is something that looks at bankruptcies, reorganizations, things that are legally complicated enough to create mispricings. And my boss had a, he was a lawyer. He also did most of the economics PhD. Um, so that's where he started. But then after the 2008 crisis, he just expanded basically to multi-strategy, any sector, uh, equities or bonds. He had amazing mathematical minds, so he could do a lot of like bond math, and he made a crazy return the year before I got there because they realized that the Fed was going to back preferred bonds, and preferred bonds were trading at a huge discount. So in any event, um, we, we had a pretty broad mandate. So under him, there were like a few positions that he had picked that I was in charge of watching, and then also he gave me quite a long leash in coming up with ideas. I think the smartphone market he did ask me to look at in particular. Um, so I was sort of, I would, I would describe what I did as kind of um, keeping tabs on news flows for uh, the companies he assigned me to, and then sort of analyzing ecosystems. And I guess that's how I approached it. I mean, he was a value investor, which I have a lot of respect for. It's very hard for value investors these days because the Fed has been printing money and pushing everything up. A value investor gets paid for picking out the relative value stocks. And when everything's going up, that's not a skill that's as valued. I do think that it will come back into fashion at some point. I don't pretend to be able to time when that is. Um, so that was a big piece of the work for him. I need to kind of start with a macro view because if a company is in a bad sector or a sector that's on the decline, you don't want to invest in it at all. And then once I thought I had an area I wanted to be, then you dig into the micro of the company. So a lot of that, because he was a value investor, was actually looking at the, um, the balance sheets of the companies, seeing you know, how their profits were growing, making sure uh, there was a margin of safety, um, looking at legal risks. So he helped me, you know, there's a lot of information that they have to put in their 10Ks and 10Qs. Those are annual and quarterly filings that all publicly traded companies are forced to um, ha have to uh, publish by law. And there's a ton of information there. Um, so, you know, there's a, a whole section on risk, there's a section that's MDMA, which I think is management discussion and analysis. 
and you can find a lot of interesting risk factors and concerns and plans for the future there because they're forced to report material you know news and information in those areas um, so in a nutshell that's what i did if there are any um i don't know if that was like a little too wide-ranging if there's anything else in particular you'd be uh, I'll, I'll mention a few other things i did um i got to i guess it's kind of cool in retrospect because you know i was in my mid-20s um i was the only other person in the front office um mm. at the time which means who actually deals with investment decisions we had a office manager who dealt with you know sending out emails and stuff and then a cfo who's making sure that we were complying with the law um, but because it was just me and my boss and my boss didn't want to meet with almost anyone because he was very busy, all of the CEOs and CFOs of these, you know, several hundred million or billion dollar companies were always trying to meet with me because we were, you know, a hedge fund of over a hundred million dollars and they wanted our investment and they couldn't get my boss. And I was the only other person that was like there to talk to. So, um, yeah, that was pretty interesting as well. And actually when I was there, other, um, interesting ways to learn was places like investment banks. Cause we use, I believe we use Goldman Sachs. That's another thing Goldman Sachs will do. They'll sort of, um, hold the holdings of a hedge fund. So they set up different conferences. So for a while I was very interested in how the consumer stocks were going to do. So they'd have like a consumer conference. So I'd spend two days going downtown to a consumer conference where they'd have all these different CEOs speak and then you could try to mingle and meet with other analysts and see what they were thinking about things. And there were also IPO lunches, which were um, whenever a company is going public, they actually have a IPO lunch, which tends to be like a three course lunch at a upscale um, you know, hotel or restaurant and they give their pitch and then afterwards there are questions so those were um other other things i did and ways i learned and tapped into what was going on while i was at the hedge fund hmm. that was definitely to me the most interesting job of the three. Oh, it definitely sounds like it um i mean yeah. can you talk us through what the process is of actually getting recruited into a hedge fund or applying for a job at a hedge fund I mean, I don't know that much about it because the only hedge fund I ever applied to, and I did get asked by two others in the future, they always, again, that friend connected me to her friend. And then I think after I was there, um, then two other funds reached out, but it was after I left and I decided I wanted to pursue other things at the time. Um, the, that is something that I know that the guy who got the job before me, so my, my friend from Punahou had gone to Harvard, so did my hedge fund boss. So he had posted the job on some Harvard forum initially, and that's how my predecessor had got it. The hedge fund world is very idiosyncratic um, for larger hedge funds. I think that oftentimes an investment banking internship is the best way to tra then transition into a hedge fund. Um, so that, that's the more standard route and for like in my case again there were two analysts and our portfolio manager and then a there were five employees total and two of them were back office so with something like that it's so small and idiosyncratic um something i would recommend is uh which i, I would recommend 
um, just as a, a tip in general, is getting on your college's um, alumni networking site and Punahos, once you're of age and they let you on it, um, or whatever school you're at, if you don't go to Punahou, uh, any high school that has it is another resource. And reaching out to people in different areas of finance and talking to them about what they do. And if you're interested in hedge funds, asking them, you know, um, if they know of any hedge funds that are looking, if they know of anyone who works in hedge funds that would be open to talking to you, having a short conversation so you can learn more. And um, yeah, that way, if you have a couple of conversations with people that work in or around hedge funds from those different perspectives, you should be able to get a bit of an idea um, of the process. And again, it does depend quite a bit on whether you're going to like a large hedge fund, which probably has a more structured uh, way of finding people that might be going after the, the same college seniors that investment banks go after, or from taking people who have worked at investment banks um, down to smaller investment, uh, smaller hedge funds, which are going to have, um, it's going to be more dependent on the whoever runs them, their portfolio manager. Hmm. Awesome. And I know you mentioned like college very briefly, but while working at those very high end um, brands such as Goldman Sachs and New York Fed and even a hedge fund, what do you find or what school did you find that most of your colleagues were coming from? Um, well, at the um, hedge fund, again, I didn't really have many colleagues, to be honest, because, uh, and because it was just me and one other analyst. Where did Mark go? Mark, I think also went to, he might have gone to Carnegie Mellon. I think he might have originally been an engineer. Um, and my boss, again, had gone to Harvard. At Penn, uh, at Penn, at the Fed, there were a bunch of people from Swarthmore. There were some people from Harvard, some people from Penn. They did tend to pick the um, top the top schools more, but there were also a couple, and this is interesting. This, this is actually another, if, if you, are not looking like you're going to get into an Ivy League school because it is very competitive. The Fed, for example, also had some people come from like Hunter, which is a, a New York, I didn't know of it before I went there. It's a local college to New York. So it might be a good idea if you're interested in finance to go to a college in New York, even if, you, if you're not able to get into the very, very top tier, because some organizations will have kind of like local outreach um initiatives where they actually do open their doors to people from hunter or other local even cuny schools potentially um which is the community university of new york so so that that is a is a thought and i i think that some other financial organizations um might look locally as well but i know that that was true at the fed hmm. Cool. And then, I mean, is there anything that you would tell people that are interested in going to finance to avoid, like, mistakes that you made that you learned from that other people shouldn't make? Um, I think it really depends on the person. Um, something I would say, again, is if you try it and you don't like it, first of all, there are a lot of jobs within finance, so don't just stick in the path that you first land in if it's not a great fit for you. Investigate, you know, talk to people with uh, 
still jobs within finance, but you know, there, there are a lot of things that, so explore the different opportunities and figure out something that's really helpful for that is figuring out what you like to do and what you're good at. So that when you're talking to others, you can mention those say, you know, I've noticed that my strengths are this, I enjoy these kind of tasks, this type of work and, and to task level, if you're talk very vaguely about what you enjoy doing, people aren't going to know where to direct you. But if you get more specific about what, um, what you enjoy and what you feel you're good at, then you can ask people within finance and they can say, oh, well, you know, so a job that actually uses a lot of that is this job. And they can sort of direct you that way. So um, yeah, so really try to find something that you think is honestly a good fit for you and isn't uh, just for the status or the money because you're much more likely to get burned out if you um, are driven solely by that. Um, and I, I would also say too, I mean, in your young, younger years, I think that it's really admirable and makes a lot of sense, like to work hard and put in long hours. Um, but keep some perspective. If your ultimate goal is to have a family, if you want to spend time with kids, at some point, you need to be willing to push back. And I remember that from Goldman, actually, there was this great senior partner who talked to all of us junior folk. He always focused his attention on the junior folk. He was, came from Morgan Stanley, he was pretty high up, and he encouraged us to push back. He said, the banks are never gonna do it for you. And again, you know, within limits when you're really young and you are hungry and you want it and you're willing to put in that time, if that's in you, then go for it. That will be appreciated. But at some point, you probably want to reclaim more time for yourself and, you know, be willing to at some point stand up for yourself and what you actually value um, in life. Um, as an interview thing, they say, don't say you're in it for the money in the interviews. I feel like things they like to hear is that you like a fast paced environment. So it, you know, it shows that you're, it's funny because most, a lot of people are in it for the money and a lot of people know that, but it's a little bit taboo to actually say that. So, um, yeah. Awesome. And then, I mean, over the past few months, we've all been hearing about these large stimulus packages that the U.S. government has yeah. been passing, um, I mean, via the quantitative easing. Uh, do you see this as a long-term problem? Um, when you say problem there, do you, like, is this a long-term, like, are they going to have to continue doing QE? Is I mean, that what you mean? Is it going to come back and, per se, bite them in the ass? Oh, I think it will. Yes, I definitely think it will. We've been hearing a lot about it lately, to be honest. It hasn't really stopped since 2008, which is when they started. There were multiple rounds of it. And then um, they did stop in 2015, but they started again in 2019. It's very interesting. They called it not QE, but it looked an awful lot like QE. <laughs> Um, they were printing money to buy, they do it digitally, so they're not physically printing, but they're digitally printing dollars. And starting late last year, there were massive problems in the, um, in the overnight bank lending market for short-term paper, which is actually critical to how a lot of companies uh, operate, sort of like we have just-in-time production. It's like just-in-time financing. They tend to have very short-term loans to finance their payroll and other uh, expenses that sort of keep the wheels going. 
Um, and there was a major breakdown in that market in September of 2019. It didn't really make headlines because the mainstream news is, and even to some degree, the financial news is not very good at, at following monetary policy. They really under follow it. But, but those problems were already, there was already serious cracks showing in late 2019. And um, on top of that, in that break, I said the Fed stopped their last QE round between, I think, I think it's 2014 or maybe 2015 to 2019. But during that time, it's like they passed the baton off to the Bank of Japan and the European Central Bank. So if you looked at global central bank printing, it was still going up, even though the Fed had stopped at that point. So I expect that they are going to have to print a lot more money, honestly. Um, it's hard to predict, but that I, um, I strongly believe. Not, it's not 100%, nothing's 100%, but it definitely looks like they will need to keep printing. And I think there are uh, a lot of negative things that come from that. I mean, for one, there was actually a recently a, a Bank of America analyst who got frustrated and wrote a whole report and he said why are people expecting rational prices when the central bank is basically fixing the prices right the, the whole idea of capitalism and market is that we get important information from the market prices but if you have an institution like the federal reserve who is not motivated by appropriately getting rewarded for the risk they're taking but rather have more have different objectives and they're coming in with trillions of dollars to influence these markets and push up the price of, of debt and, and basically make it appear as though the market is saying it's less risky than the market would actually say it was without Federal Reserve intervention. It is really skewing the, the price, the value of, of what pricing does, which is critical in, in, in capitalism, that, that information it provides, and that's being lost. In addition, it's leading to a massive increase in the amount of debt. Um, so after the 2008 crisis, when they brought interest rates down to near zero, from that to like current day, for US corporations outside of the banks, the total debt has doubled in 10 years. That is stark. The US government, similarly, I believe that our debt has about doubled. And that's what happens when you make interest rates super low, you're making money really cheap for big governments and organizations to borrow. So it's encouraging borrowing, it's encouraging debt. And what we've seen is a rational response to that, which is big organizations and corporations and governments taking out a lot more debt. And lots of debt creates more systemic fragility. You need everything to go right. You need to make more interest payments to pay back that huge amount of debt. Um, there's also a huge risk in rolling over the debt. Like a lot of the debt, when it comes due, companies don't pay it all off. They just reissue debt. Um, but if you have this huge amount and then suddenly buyers dry up, you are in a really tough situation. Um, and I could go, it's really the number of effects that quantitative easing have on the financial system and our society are kind of staggering. Um, so I won't uh, drone on and on. This is something, if anyone out there is interested, this is something I'm, I'm working on a blog to sort of explain this to interested lay people about. And I would love to, um, yeah, would, you know, would love to, to get people who are interested as I, as I make the blog public and would love to get feedback and, and all of those um, sorts of things. But 
to, to drill it down to a, or up to a really high level, we live in a capitalist society and capital is at the base of that. Where capital is expended, what is invested in, that is, it makes, it, it, it has massive effects for all of our society. The interest rate is the cost of capital. So if you're tinkering around that fundamentally with the price of money and how much money there is and who gets all this money in a capitalist society, you need to expect that that's going to have some, some pretty wide ranging and, and serious repercussions. And it absolutely is. Yeah. I mean, so now that quantitative easing, easing is happening on such a large scale, I mean, yeah. what do you think the role of cryptocurrencies will play in the monetary system in the future? I think it depends on what role the Federal Reserve and other central banks let it play, honestly. I think that Bitcoin has definitely gone up in response to all of this printing, which makes a ton of sense. Bitcoin has also been called like digital gold, right? And you've also seen gold go up. So I think that gold and Bitcoin um, definitely are a similar play in a way. Bitcoin is, um, it's riskier, it has much bigger upside, and it's also riskier, right? So that's the, and then precious metals are a little more solid, but they both are hedges against lots of money printing and devaluation of currencies. And again, all of the central banks are doing it at the same time. So it's not like you can hide in, in yen or in euros because all of the major central banks are doing it. So it makes a lot of sense to me that, that cryptocurrencies are a beneficiary and gold is a beneficiary. And again, I think the hardest thing with crypto is governments like having monopoly over their currency. And for a long time, cryptocurrency wasn't big enough to be a legitimate threat. Once it gets to that point, they could absolutely, you know, drop the hammer on, on regulating it, on not allowing it. I haven't heard any desire of them to do it thus far, but it is the sort of thing that it's this unfortunate kind of paradoxical thing with the, with the more successful Bitcoin is, the higher the risk that that will happen to it, right? Because then it's more of a threat. Um, it's taking more power from the currency um, that the government controls. Yeah. And I also did hear, I mean, originally with the whole stimulus bill, they were trying, they took this language out, but they were originally trying to require all citizens to get their, you know, $1,200 check to uh, download like a digital dollar app, right? With its own little ledger, it'd be a bit different, but like, and there's a lot of thought that that is still an intention, even though it was taken out of that original bill possible in further future funding rounds that that will be required and it will be interesting um yeah it will be interesting to see that but but again i mean it's still whether or not they have a, a crypto dollar they're still able to print as much as they want so i don't think that that would hurt bitcoin as much unless they decided now that we have this digital dollar we don't want bitcoin competing with it yeah that makes sense I mean, and then how has how have investment banks and just the financial institutions in general been affected by the effects of COVID-19 and the economic disaster that's currently in, unfolding? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think they're very nervous about it. I think that um, it's all, they're very dependent on what the Federal Reserve does 
again, like a, cause a huge beneficiary, uh, again, as I mentioned, the amount of non-financial corporate debt in the U S doubled between uh, the last crisis and currently. And as I mentioned before, investment banks, part of their job is taking debt to market. If they're, if, if a bond is being issued, there's an investment bank behind it issuing that bond. And for every bond they issue, they get a percentage of that. So the fact that there was this massive amount of debt being issued for the last 10 years, that was a huge boon to the banks because they get a cut on every debt issuance. You know, now they're pushing interest rates back to zero again. The Fed is currently saying we won't go negative already um, in the Eurozone. There's a lot of negative interest debt, which is a very weird concept. It's very counterintuitive to people because you're basically paying people to hold your money, you know? giving them a hundred dollars with the deal that in a couple of years they'll give you back like 97, right? That doesn't seem like that good a deal. Um, so, but something like that encourages more debt to be issued again. If, because that, it's a bad, that's a bad deal if you're lending money to someone. If you're borrowing money and I get to borrow a hundred dollars from you and in a few years I pay you back less than I borrowed, it's a fantastic deal for me, the borrower. So when interest rates are kept super low, that encourages more debt to be offered if they're successful in that. I mean, at this point, we have so much debt that I think it's like very dicey to be encouraging the system to take on more and more debt, but they're kind of doing that right now. So if they are successful and the system continues issuing lots of debt, then the banks will be beneficiaries from that. But if the system looks shaky, um, which it, you know, also currently does, then big banks are going to be more hesitant to bring on new employees. Um, and this is all from, I, you know, I'm not currently working in finance. So I once again, think the best place to go for this sort of information to get like on the ground color on how banks are reacting and how it might affect their hiring decisions is to get on LinkedIn, to get on, if you're in college, your um, university alumni network, uh, if you're in a high school with an alumni network, once you're of age, they let you on, to do that and to be asking people at banks what they are seeing currently and, and their thoughts on um, how it might affect employment. And I also might ask them a question like, if you were a junior in college or even a freshman in college, but freshmen are less likely to be looking for banking jobs. But, you know, if you were, basically, if you were me, how would this change your job search? Are there other areas you would look to? Are there any areas of finance that are benefiting from this? Um, and they might come up with ideas of like, yeah, this unit is hurting, but this unit actually has some opportunities. So it might be better to apply there. Yeah, and that's actually a perfect segue into our next question, which is, I mean, what would you recommend for aspiring investment banking analysts and financial professionals to, I mean, do particularly over this unique summer in order to prepare for a possible career in finance? Yeah, well, um, I think, you know, educating yourself on it. Uh, one resource that I was recommended that was very helpful for me um, when I was looking at investment banking jobs was the vault books. I think they now have a more substantive um, online presence. So 
you know, maybe people don't even want to buy the books anymore. Maybe they just want to see what information they have publicly available. And I haven't checked this, but I would bet money. They probably have some way for you to pay them online to get access to more and better information. And um, that's a really good way, like a very few high school students can answer what does private, what does someone in private equity do versus someone at a hedge fund versus someone at an investment bank. And those books were pretty thin, like not a lot of fluff in them, but very good at breaking down what the day to day, what you tended to do, the skill sets that were needed and just basic advice. And it also, again, helps you differentiate between these different jobs within finance which allows you to sound a lot more intelligent in the interviews. Um, you know, knowing, I, I, I think that's a big advantage, like having it clear that you actually know what the job is, what an investment bank does is um, important when you're applying for those things. And something like the vault books, super valuable in concisely getting that information and helping you differentiate between different areas of finance. Um, again, uh, alumni networks, I, I can't stress enough. And if you're, you know, if you're fortunate enough to have parents who have friends in finance, absolutely that too. Or friends, parents, right? It's not just parents, friends, friends, parents. If they're in finance or know people in finance, I think that is a, um, a great way to go as well. Um, once you're in college, I think that you want to look for clubs that relate to finance. Um, sooner rather than later. Uh, it's really great if you're able to build relationships with students a year or two years above you that are also interested in finance. I would say that that was uh, a big mistake uh, or is a big mistake that a lot of um, people interested in finance make is that they want to go, they're like, oh, you know, maybe this person on my alumni network is a managing director, right? They're high up. So I want to talk to them. Actually, for the, for the lower down hiring, it's people lower on the totem pole that have the most say. So if you are friends with someone two years above you, they might have more pull in who actually gets the analyst position than a higher up person who possibly isn't going to be bothered to spend a lot of time making the hiring decision from like an entry level for an entry level person. So I, I, I think that's really something I want to highlight. Don't just worry about going for the person with the most impressive title. Um, we're, you know, try to build relationships with people just a little bit older than you that are in the same industry that will probably be more fruitful. On, on that front too, I think that um, this is something more available to men, but fraternities uh, certainly at Penn were a great way to um, get a foot in the door. Again, it's, it's just building relationships with people a little bit older than you. Some sororities these days, there are a couple of sororities out there that are more um, career focused. And just as more women have gotten into finance, there are also just more sorority sisters, even in sororities that are not focused exclusively on finance, um, who you know, there are more sorority sisters who are in finance and that can be really helpful too. So fraternities and sororities can be a, a helpful way to go there as well. Um, yeah. Awesome. I mean, yeah, that's great. And for our attendees at this time, if you guys have any questions, feel free to ask it into the Q&A module, but to pass the time a little bit more and to give you time to think of your question, I'm going to ask one more question. 
um, which is, do you have any final tips or pointers or suggestions for anyone looking to get into Korean finance? Um, I would also say that you could go into your career services offices early. Um, honestly, in my experience, they weren't the most helpful, but I, I was undecided when I went in. I think they would have been um, more helpful. Uh, they're, they're, a problem with career services, a lot of career services is they're not that helpful if you don't know what you wanna do, but they tend to have some good information on some of the pretty set paths. So if you wanna to go to law school, if you wanna get a PhD, at Penn certainly, if you wanted to go into finance, they had better um, advice for that. So I would check out, and career services are also very idiosyncratic. Some schools have great career services, some are not that good, and it doesn't seem to be that correlated to how high a university is ranked. Um, so uh, that, that's another place to, to check out. Awesome, so thank you. And I mean, for our final question, in your eyes, how has the recent coronavirus pandemic presented investors and students with different opportunities? Um, well, I think for students, I'll start with students, I think that it is given students who have their own interests or maybe are interested in something like finance, which you don't get to spend a lot of time on in school, especially high school. It's given you more free time where you're not in the classroom where you can pursue your own interests. So you have more time in the day to read things like the Bolt books to understand the difference between different types of, of finance careers. You have more time to go on LinkedIn to actually send out requests. So that would be one last tip I would give, be bold. Like a, a lot of people get really timid, don't wanna bother people asking them to talk. Just do it. Like if, first of all, if they're on your alumni network, they've already raised their hand and said, I am open to talking to alumni that have questions for this. Um, but I, I remember I, I talked to some college students a while back, and I think that, that that fear or shyness held a lot of people back from actually reaching out. So, like, don't. And LinkedIn, too. I mean, LinkedIn, they haven't exactly raised their hands to want to talk to you, so you might have a lower response rate. That's fine. You know, if you thro throw out 10 and only two or three respond, that's two or three informational interviews where you can get a lot of quality information. Who cares about the seven or eight that didn't respond, right? That didn't really cost you anything. So that I see is the, the benefit for students, for self-starting students, for students who have interests outside of school that they want to spend more time on. This is a perfect opportunity to do that and to learn a bit more about yourself. Again, what your strengths are and what tasks you like, that sort of information seems like it should be really obvious to all of us, but actually it isn't to most people. So spend some time reflecting on yourself and those sort of questions. Um, as far as the opportunities it prevents to investors, you know, that's really tricky. Um, I feel like the market is so volatile right now. Like I feel like it's gonna go down and we're gonna retest the lows, but I don't know. They're printing so much money and pumping so much money in that um, that could never happen again. I think that they're actually, so they've already changed the rules. Um, they are only legally, the Federal Reserve is only legally allowed to buy bonds that are government backed. So that's government securities or some mortgage backed securities that are guaranteed by the government. But in the last couple of months they have 
created a facility at Treasury where they're basically buying corporate bonds, including junk bonds, which is pretty past what their mandate is supposed to be. They might be legally getting this around it by housing it at the Treasury because they're not holding it. Um, I think there's a good chance that they're actually going to go into stocks by the end of the year. I'm not sure, but I, I, that's, my, that's what I suspect. But I think that for that to happen, there's going to have to be another significant correction in markets to justify them making that bold of a step. Um, so, but like as far as that being an opportunity for investor, it's a big risk. You know, it's a, it's a, I, I guess if markets go to some low level, there could be, there definitely will at some point be opportunity in buying, but for for most investors that are relatively new or not um, like students i i don't know that i would put too much money into the market i might play with a an account that has um, play money to start with and see how it goes i would try to stay away from too much day trading um, that tends to be rigged against the day traders. Some people are successful, some people are good, but, but most uh, end up losing that game. And um, I, I do think, you know, something that I think actually could be a, an opportunity for students, student investors even I'll call them, is in areas that you have experience with or knowledge in. So perhaps you see like people that were early to get Zoom, right or amazon there there are some companies that are going to do well from everyone being inside so if you have some uh real insight into like a new technology that's becoming popular among teens and you can pair that with a little bit of looking at their balance sheet or maybe talking to someone with more of a background with more years in finance to maybe have them check it because even if a company is going to grow depending on how their financials are set up and the price they're currently trading at it doesn't mean that the stock is a good deal so you want to do some some you know checking on that point but i do think that students have a better tap on up and coming technologies and so if you are able to spot what you think will be winners in this uh in this environment that i think could be a a real opportunity for students but i i would just exercise some caution it's easy to really want to roll the dice and bet big and the majority of people that do that in markets like this end up losing their shirt so yeah i mean awesome all right thank you miss Perry, so much for joining us today and sharing your knowledge experiences and time with us um, we really appreciate it here at virtual student experiences and i'm sure all the other students who will view this later will be very grateful for what you shared with us today. Um, I mean, for students who want to figure out the logistics, something that you may be interested in the future is a beginner's investing webinar. If you'd like to be notified about future VSE webinars, you can sign up on our website at virtualstudentexperiences.com. Um, all right, and that's all. Thank you, everyone, and have a nice Memorial Day. Thank you. Mm -hmm.